You're listening to the Boise Community Church Podcast. We desire to be a people who are following Jesus authentically and missionally. For more information, please visit boisecommunitychurch.org. So most of everybody here knows I'm a runner. I like to run. Um, one of my favorite things is when I tell people I'm a runner, and then I tell them how far I usually run, they're like, wow, you really don't look like a runner. I'm like, that's right. That's what I'm going for. So... <laughs> um, but something that's interesting is, you, most people don't realize this, but as a runner, the hardest time to run, for me personally, it's not in the, the dead heat, in the intense heat of July and August here, where it's, you know, 105 and terribly hot. Um, and just to be clear, I don't go out running when it's 105, because that's not a good idea. Um, or even in the extreme colds of January and February, it's 10 or 8, you know, or 5. And I, I will I'll still be out there just cruising in my, my shorts and my, I'll have a long sleeve on and, and a beanie on usually, but just cruising up and down the green belt. The hardest days for me to run is right after I finish a race that I've trained for. I remember the first time I ran a half marathon and that was actually on my bucket list. I was like, oh man, I never thought I'd be able to run that long. So I was like, this just seems like forever. And then I finished my first half right when COVID started. I kind of got into running more as that because I had more time. And after I finished, I remember going for runs after that. And I remember feeling bored. It felt aimless. And so then eventually in my mind, I got this like stir crazy thing in my mind where I'm like, I think I'm going to run a full. And I kept running through this idea in my mind where I'm like, I'm going to run a full marathon. And I didn't tell anyone for like three months because I did, didn't want to commit to something that was absolutely horrible. And I did anyway. Um, and then I finished that one, and it was hard and it was challenging. But once I healed up, I'd find myself back out on the green belt jogging along. And I found myself in that same place, feeling bored, feeling aimless. And what I learned in that was what my measuring stick of what I was looking for and what I was wanting for during those races, my entire goal was to finish. So finishing was what I was using to be able to measure how I was doing. How am I doing in hitting my distances? How am I doing in getting to this certain spot? But there comes a point, like I'm not going to keep running, you know, I'm not going to become one of those people that runs like 100 mile races because that's just insane. Um, and I have a job, and kids, and, and our church. So I have, I have other things that need to take my time. But what I learned in this process was I learned that what's really important for us is having this goal, or having a way that we can act, actually measure ourselves and our growth. Have you ever thought about that, how you measure yourself, how you're really doing? How am I doing? Oh, I'm good. We say this a lot. Tammy's actually really great about this because I'll walk into to the building some Sundays, so this Sunday being one of them, and I'll be, I'll have this stressed look on my face, and she'll be like, "How are you doing?" And I'm like, "I'm good." And she's like, "Are you really good? Or are you just responding that you're good?" And then I'll be like, "Ah." So sometimes you guys will ask me, and it always takes me a minute to respond. Tammy's trained me to be slower in my responses to give an accurate depiction of how I'm actually doing. And I think we respond this way because we aren't actually 
in tune with what's really going on, or we don't have an accurate way of really measuring how we're really doing. And so with that, let's look at verse 28 in Mark chapter 12. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commands, which is the most important? So Jesus, or the most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the love, the love, sorry, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. Verse 33, to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. And so we've been in this season where we've been kind of going through and we've seen the different people coming to Jesus and questioning him, challenging his authority. And Jesus is finally kind of putting it all to a stop at this point with this man that comes to him. After everything, this teacher of the law, a scribe, who is the highest level of respect when it came to like the, the theological matters of the day, he comes up to Jesus and he asks him, Hey, Jesus, what command is the greatest? And those of us that have gone to church, we've, re we've heard this story. We know this story. We know where it's going. But I want to ask you to really think about what's going on in this story and not just be like, yeah, we need to love. We need to love God. We need to love people. That's true. That's it boiled down really simply. But let's really look at what's going on in this passage in this moment. So the scribes were a people that were responsible for preserving God's word and helping people understand it. They were like a theologian and a lawyer that were mixed together. So like when we think about the scribes, a lot of times we have this mentality where they're like a high up lofty theologian, you know, like N.T. Wright, and they're in this ivory tower and they're writing books and they're doing all these things to help explain what's going on. But they would also approach it with this attitude of almost like a lawyer. One of the things that's really interesting about lawyers is the law have, doesn't care about anyone's feelings, which is really interesting. My wife and I got really into watching like lawyer shows. We were watching that show Suits, and I remember being really intrigued by it. And then when we got into foster care and we were going to court with our children, one of the things that was really interesting was watching how things played out. Because there's this piece where like, you're sitting there and you're like, don't you have the heart? Like, how can you not connect to this piece of it? And eventually I realized as I was watching you know, the judge, both in the show and in, in this thing, you know, in the foster care dynamic with us, their commitment was to the law on what is truly right and what is truly wrong. So where has there been a breach is what they're looking for. Or how do we get people to stay in the right spot? 
And when we look at the Old Testament, we talk about it. We talk about it. We call it the law, the books of the law, you know, the Torah. And so this question that this man brings, it makes a lot of sense. And it was fairly common in that day. So the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, it had 613 commands in it. There's a lot of commands. 365 of them are negative. Like, hey, don't do these. So every day of the year, there's a command for don't do this. And so there's, the, there's a lot of laws there. And you're like, yeah, that's a lot. But I could probably manage that, right? But then the, in Jesus' day, there was actually this common oral tradition that almost all of the rabbis and the Jewish people followed. And it's not in your Bible. I want to be very clear. This is not in Scripture. But it was a practice that was followed in Jesus' day. And some actually believe that Jesus followed it flowed underneath it. It's called the Mishnah. And there was another 1,500 commands that were put on top of the Jewish people. And maybe these were some of the ones that Jesus was like, hey, you're putting heavy burdens on the peoples that you yourselves are not willing to bear up, you know? So it's not just hundreds of commandments that these guys are now trying to follow, but it's thousands. And so people would understandably try to ask, hey, what's the most important? You know, should I not, you know, commit adultery with my neighbor or should I not speed down Chinden because I'm running late to church in the morning, right? Like those don't carry the same weight, but they're both still laws. They're both still things. And so they would ask this question, what's the most important? Which ones should we really give our attention to and really try to focus on? And so people would ask this question a lot. They would they would they would see this and they would wrestle with it because this a list of this magnitude, if we're all honest, would be overwhelming to actively think of and to be aware of, to make sure that you are not in breach of if you're living in this idea of right and wrong, black and white. Because that is how they lived in the Old Testament. That is how the Jews presented their faith. You follow God and you do what's right and God will bless you and God will love you. But if you follow God or if you do not follow and you choose to walk in your own path, it will lead to cursing, essentially. And so oftentimes people would try to summarize this and they would point these things out and try to figure out, okay, what is that? What's the most important? An old story that's actually from around the time of Jesus is there's these two rabbis. There's Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. And there was a belief that there was this Roman citizen. He was a non-Jewish man, so he's a Gentile. So right off the bat, he's definitely not one of the people that people would, you know, the Jewish community would accept very openly. But this man, it's said that he had a desire to become a Jewish convert. And becoming a convert in that day, it was not as easy as, as we make it here in the West, in the church. We're like, hey, all eyes closed, you know, raise your hand, and you, know, you can do it all very secretively, or just say it in the quietness of your heart. For them, it was like, no, you're going to learn the entire Torah. You're going to learn this and memorize it and know it. There was, a, there was a high bar to commit into it if you were not from a blood descent. It was a very challenging thing. So this man's got a lot going on. He's very busy. And he goes to both of these rabbis. And so he goes to Rabbi 
Shammai first. He he's, says, hey, I'm interested. I want to be a follower. Here's the deal. I'm going to stand on one foot, and I want you to teach me the Torah while I stand on it. Teach me all of the, the entire Torah while I stand on one foot. And Rabbi Shammai is frustrated at this. Felt like this man was making a mockery of their faith. So he very maturely, very wisely, grabs a stick and like chases this guy away. He's like, get out of here. You know, that's what you do when you're really, <laughs> really mature. You chase people with sticks. Um, then he goes to Rabbi Hillel and he does the same thing. And Rabbi Hillel has a very different response. Rabbi Hillel says, while this man's standing on, his, on one leg, he says, what is, hateful to, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is the explanation of this. Go and study it. And so what this scribe's doing in this moment with Jesus, he wasn't doing something that was outside of the norm. He was actually doing something that was a very common practice by most of the rabbis in that day. They was saying, hey, where do you fall in this grand scheme of things? And to be clear, I don't think Jesus was saying Rabbi Hillel is the, is the one that got it and Rabbi Shammai is, you know, he's just this really intense legalistic guy. But what's going on here is everybody's after the same thing. They're trying to figure out what is the main thing? What is the most important? What is God really after? Is God after submission? Is he after my intelligence and my intellect? Is he after passion? Is he after service? Is he after justice? Is he after piety? Nor this religious activity. What does God really care about? And so I think we can come to this text and we can know it in our minds, but I think it's important that we actually take a moment to reflect on this for us as well. When you think of someone being mature in your faith, in their faith, what comes to mind? How do you quantify maturity, especially spiritual maturity? I mean, if we look at it from a biological stance, it's very clear, right? We see maturity as you start, you're born, you're an infant, then you grow up to be a child, then you grow up to be a teen, which is kind of like growing down, but no, you get bigger, and then eventually you're a full-grown adult. You just, that's maturity, right? But we all know that maturity is so much more than just getting older with age. We all know older people that wisdom does not come out of them. And we also know that there doesn't, if someone's older, doesn't mean that they are actually mature emotionally or spiritually. So what do we use to measure maturity in the follower of Jesus? I want you to try and find that. Think about it. Allow your mind to be stirred in this question. Another way to ask it would be is what is the key aim of the Christian or the follower of Jesus? What's the thing that we put up as the most important thing? Maybe you've never thought about this. I'm sure some of you have. 
If we are followers of Jesus, what should we look like? What should we be like? What is our measure? And to be clear, it's super simple. And you probably know because we already read the text. It's very clear. It's not easy, but it is simple. The measuring, the measuring stick for us is love. A love for God and a love for people. A mature follower of Jesus is a person of love. They will be a person that extends love and grace and humility. But all that like that grace and that humility and that generosity and that service, it all flows from the place of love. And I think it's really interesting because we know this intellectually. But I would ask you, are you a person of love? Is that what's naturally bubbling up out of you? Or are you a person of worry, a person of fear, a person of doubt, a person of angst, a person of anger, a person of frustration, a person of sadness? I was reading this week and there was this really interesting thought. This pastor up in uh, Vancouver in Canada. And he's talking about how the things that come out of us it's the way that we think about ourselves and the way that we, the habit that we form in ourselves. And it was a really interesting thing to read what this guy was saying, and I'm not fully through it, so I can't give you like the, the answer to it fully, but this idea of being a person of worry, if that's what's bubbling up out of you, bringing that before the Lord and being really honest about it. And so Jesus is calling us to be this person of love. So he starts with answering this man's question and he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter six. So Jesus is not just coming up and just kind of making up his own way of like, hey, I'm gonna completely change everything. He's, instead he goes back to the scriptures and he holds them up and says, this is what's important. He says, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And that's the part that we, we just read, right? But this is how it continues on. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And this was something that the Jews knew incredibly well. This was, it's called the Shema. It's actually something that the Jews would pray in the mornings and the evenings, similar to how a lot of Christians will do the Lord's Prayer and kind of the, the front and the end of their day, they would do this one. This is the, the Shema. They would take this and they would take this prayer and they would actually write it on pieces of paper and they would put it in a wooden box and then they would nail it to the frame of their homes as well. Some of you may actually have this. I know we used to have one. I think we have it. We took it with us when we moved from our last place, but we've never put it back up. But actually in this building, as you're leaving the building, there's one of these where they actually have, it's got that, uh, that prayer written inside of it. And I recognized it, you know, from, from ours. 
But in the Shema, God was calling the people to make a declaration that God was one, which for them, when this kind of came into being, probably around you know 3000 BCE, the view of a single God was outside of the norm. Monotheism was definitely not a common practice. Most religions in spiritual practice would have multitudes of gods, you know, several if not hundreds. And so this idea that they would come and they would say, no, the Lord your God is one, it would be this revolutionary thing for them. Because that for them, they would have the God that would feed them and the God that would give them fertility and the God that would give them prosperity and the God that would give them vengeance and justice. But God came to the Israelites and said, no, you're not coming to a multitude of gods, you're coming to one, because I am the God of gods. And so the call was to de declare that he is one, but the call was also to love him with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, with your strength. And what's interesting about this is what is he asking there? He's asking us to love God with all that we are. Because a lot of times we take these things and we separate them out and we make them these different things. You know, we approach the we approach the Bible and our faith and we live from this mindset of we are we are hearts with a soul, with a mind, with a body, when in reality, each part of you is what makes you who you are. For example, your, your heart is your emotions, or your soul is your practices and the way that you connect with God, or your mind in the way that you stir yourself to thinking and meditating upon his word, or your strength, which is actually your body. All of these are meant to be different avenues of how we express our love towards God. But collectively, they are all of you. So, for example, to kind of pull this out a little deeper, many of the people I know who follow Jesus, they are tremendous at loving God with their mind. I love loving God with my mind. You give me a really good book, and I'm just like the happiest guy in the world. I love sitting and reading and having my mind stirred. Like, that's kind of my thing on Sunday nights. I put my kids to bed, and I just sit, and I read, and I pray, and I journal. And it's good. I love it. You know, reading my Bible, reading spiritual books, or just thinking about God and wanting to understand Him more. I think a lot of us are wired that way, especially in the West. Or it can be easier to show up with our soul, doing the spiritual practices, whether that's in, in, in you know, trying to engage with them, whether that's through fasting, through silence and solitude, or simply prayer. Like, that's Loving God with your soul. But how are you at loving God with your body? And this can be a part of the way that you worship physically. Maybe you kneel when you pray, or maybe you stand with your arms open, ready to receive. The thing about this love that we are talking about, it's not void of emotion, and it's not only emotion. In the Greek, the word that Jesus used in this moment where he's saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the word for agape, which those of you that have come to church for a long time, you probably have heard that word, which represents this love that is unconditional. 
It's not based on what you do or what you get. So God is coming to people saying, I want you to love me without reservation or without limits. The same way that I love you. Which is a very tall order. And I think if we're honest, we wrestle with that. St. Thomas Aquinas, the, the Catholic friar, he defined love, I think, the best. And it's a, it's a definition that I use a lot. He described love as love is to will the good of another. He would say true love derives less from emotion and more from decision. And so what this means for us is the things that I do with my body or the things I allow into my mind or into my soul and into my heart, they matter. The things you eat, the things you drink, the things you look at, the things you read, listen to, it all affects you. And to bring us back to this point, God's desire is that we would love him with all of ourselves, not just with part of ourselves. Because here's the reality, church. If we only worship God with our minds, you will be not a fully matured disciple. You'll be the guy that, that's at the gym that's got the, you know, the super big chest and big arms, and then you look at his legs and it's like, man, you have like the legs of like an eight-year-old. This is crazy. Proportionally, he's not put together right because he just did the things he wanted to do. But we approach our spiritual life this way, not making ourselves whole and complete because we're not willing to dive in in these certain areas. And something that I think is interesting about this is God's desire is that we would love him with all of ourselves. And the interesting piece in this is that the scribe just asks him, hey, what's the greatest commandment? So he's asking very clearly, he's saying, what's the singular greatest commandment? But Jesus doesn't give him one. He gives him two. Because Jesus doesn't stop. He doesn't give a break in the conversation where he's like, well, the first one is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Long pause. Oh, and the second one. He just goes right into it. Where Jesus begins quoting again another part of the Torah in Leviticus 19. He says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one another or against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Notice the scribe didn't ask for two commands. He asked for one. But in the way of Jesus, you cannot separate these things out. They are interlocked. The love of God and the love of people. Oftentimes we get caught up with this mentality where we are either focused on one or the other. You know, love for God, looking strongly and being strongly focused on studying the word and having this deep theology. Or a love for mankind where we focus on the ministry of justice, helping those that are less fortunate. Maybe that's foster care, the homeless, or the refugees. Different areas where we show up in those ways. But this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, we remember that the response to this in Luke's account, how Jesus responded, was very interesting. Because the scribe then asks him the question, well, who is my neighbor? Same thing we would probably all ask. Well, who do I need to really love if I need to love my neighbor? Is it like just my like, cul-de-sac? Is it the street? Is it my city? Because I'll just take my cul-de-sac. Because everybody else out there is kind of a little bit more uh, difficult, right? Then Jesus tells this story, a story we all probably know, the story of the Good Samaritan, where the, 
the hero of the story is a heretic. There's this man that's beaten and bloody along the road and no one stops to help him. The priest doesn't stop. The Levite doesn't stop. So the religious leader and the religious person, they all are like, I got too much stuff going on. I'm too busy. I can't really stop. I don't, you don't need my help. And they just walk past. But this guy, who's, he's, a, he's a weird guy. The Samaritans were weird people. He's the guy that shows up and he helps him regardless. And so Jesus asks the scribe, well, who is, who is the better neighbor? And he's like, well, it's the Samaritan, I guess. And I think the powerful moment in that story is that these two men would have hated each other outside of these circumstances. The Samaritans hated the Jews, and the Jews hated the Samaritans. But in this story, Jesus is like, hey, this is the hero of the story. This is the man that's better at loving than, than you guys. And so that question, well, who is my neighbor? It's essentially, where is my limit? When can I stop and not care? Because it's hard to love people, and it's hard to care about them. I used to always hear people say when I, you know, when they were annoyed with people, I don't have to like them to love them, which makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> it is a complete cop-out, and I will tell you that it is not biblical at all to have that, that approach. Like, I'm going to love somebody from a distance because they're annoying. <laughs> but here's the thing. The word for love here is actually the same word that God, Jesus used when he talked about loving God. This unconditional, sacrificial love. So love your neighbor as yourself. Be willing to will the good of another for your neighbor. Put, put them to the forefront and push them up. So that we are commanded to have this love for our neighbor, which is our fellow man, in the same way that God has for us. And the reality is, in that story of the Good Samaritan in Luke's Gospel, it isn't convenient, it isn't easy. For, the, for this guy to show up, this Samaritan, to help this man, it cost him time, it cost him money. It was no small task. He loved this man even though he didn't know him, even though it was inconvenient, even though it cost him, even though the man was beaten and would have hated this person in any different circumstance. But in this moment, he has compassion on him. He sees a fellow image bearer and loves him. It's easy for us to love the people that look like us, sound like us, believe the same things as us, vote like us, have the same value system as us. But to love your neighbor means to love the stranger, to love the outcast, to love the one that's different, to love the person that says things that are just really off and frustrating. Because remember, what is Jesus after in this? He's bringing us to this place where he's saying, the measure for our lives is love. And so in the, in the final closing of the text, we see this scribe affirm what Jesus is saying. He looks at him and he's like, yeah, 
You're right. These things are more important than any of the sacrifices or any of the burnt offerings, any of the, the religious activity that we do. You're right, Jesus. And Jesus' response is really interesting to me. Because Jesus isn't like clapping his hand like, yeah, you got it, good job. He says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He doesn't say, you've, you've got it, you're there. You're not far from it. Why does Jesus say that to him? He says it because this man only had knowledge. Something that we've held on to here in the West, you know, when the Enlightenment came in, it brought this idea, I think, therefore I am. But in reality, that's just not true. Information alone and thinking alone can only take us so far. It is important and it does bring us close. But true transformation cannot happen until it is actually put into practice. It's like that beautiful, or not beautiful, it's that picture of when you're praying for patience and it seems like you just are surrounded by really difficult people. Patience is not something that comes magically. Patience comes through putting the hard work in and being around some difficult people and learning to regulate your own emotions and soul. When I pray that I'm a person of peace, the thing that I'm usually praying for is not actually praying like, Lord, help everything around me to just be peaceful. Because I don't expect that, because I know what our world is. More so, my vision is, Lord, help me to be a rock when the waves are swirling all around me and things are crashing against me, that I'm just steady. And I can be this moment of peace in the midst of a lot of worry and a lot of chaos. And it's the same thing with love. And I want to be careful in this, because this idea of this, this man had not yet put these things into practice, maybe that's where you're at this morning. And I want to be careful, because I believe we can hear this, and we can be very discouraged, like, cool, I came to church, and I found out that I don't love the way I, I should, I don't love, the way, love God the way I should, I don't love people the way I should. And the reality is that that's all of us in this room. Continue with my running theme. I was out on a run this week. I was running on my trail near my house. And I, I literally run the same trail every day. Or not every day, but I run every time I go running, I run the exact same path. It's there's something really peaceful about it. I know where I'm going, I know like where everything's at. There's not a lot of people on it. That's the main reason I do it. Um, and it's just peaceful. So I'm out and I'm running, I'm like a mile in, and there's a tree that's fallen in the middle of the road, or in the middle of the path. And it's a, it's a really big tree. It's not just like this little like Charlie Brown Christmas tree where I'm like, cool, I'm like skip over it and just kind of keep going. It's like a big tree, and so I'm like thinking through in my mind. My first thought is like I'm picturing myself in high school just being like, just able to just like run, jump, and then like jump off the tree and just keep on cruising. As I'm getting close, I'm like, I'm not 18 years old anymore. Like, 
I'm 35, most likely what's going to happen is I'm going to jump on top, roll my ankle, and then smash my face. And then I'm going to be really embarrassed. So I run up to it, and I decide, I'm trying to, all these things are going through my mind. Do I run and jump over this thing? Do I climb over it? Do I stop? Do I try to walk around it? There's nowhere to walk around it because there's the river on both sides of it. And so I'm like trying to figure out, what am I going to do? Because this thing, this tree, is blocking me from where I want to go. It's blocking me from my routine. It's block, It's interrupting my path. And you know what happens when things interrupt my path and my normal way of going? I'm not like, oh, sweet, an obstacle. This is great. I really wanted to make running harder. And so I did. In my mind, I was like, I can just run around, go the other direction, and just change my route until somebody from the city comes and cuts the tree up and does their thing, and then we'll do it. It happens all the time. But as I'm getting closer, I'm just like, oh, I really want to go this route. This is where I want to go. So I get close, my hand on the tree, and I just do this little like old man, like jump over the tree, and I keep going. It slows me, in, it slows me down, but in the end, it, it felt worth it. So I did that on all my runs this week because this, nobody ever came out and cut the strip. So I'm curious to see if it's gone by this next week. The call that Jesus is giving us here is a love that we are not called to white-knuckle it through. And if you're not familiar with this term, white-knuckling, it's this idea of just like holding on to something as hard as you can. It's used a lot in, in uh, addictive and recovery type ministries and groups. They talk about holding on with everything you have and just trying to be good. The hard part about that is, you know, I can hold my arms out like this for, you know, a few minutes, but probably not for an hour, definitely not for a day. You know, eventually my, the, the lactic acids will move into my shoulders and it, my arms will feel like they are 100 pounds. I can try with all my might to hold my arms like that, but eventually they will get tired and I will have to put them down. And so the, this idea of the love that Jesus is talking about in this moment, it's not something that we white-knuckle it through where we're trying to say, I am just going to love God more and I'm going to try harder. Or I'm going to love people better and I need to do these things. Because what's funny is, it's easy when it's a down tree on my running path. I can get over that. I can find a way to you know, get over it and it's not a big deal. It's not this huge emotional turmoil. But currently there is someone that's in my story that I am struggling really hard to love. Struggling to live in forgiveness with them. Because of actions that they have chosen and the way that their actions have hurt myself and my family and all and a bunch of people around me. It's not as easy to get over something like that when it's something that's right there in your face. And for you, maybe it's a past trauma. Maybe it's an unanswered prayer that you had from God. You're like, why would I love a God that hasn't answered the prayer that I have? And I know, I don't know about you, but I know when I come up to these areas of my life, I get frustrated. Why can't I just forgive? Why can't I just love this person? 
Why can't I just move past this? Be the person I want to be. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. That's like, that's a pretty common thing in my own soul. But it's really simple. What keeps me from becoming the person I want to be? It's me. It's shame. I was talking with Kylie a few weeks ago about this particular person that I was struggling with. And I'm sitting there with her and I'm having this dialogue in my mind where I'm like, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to go into this because I'm embarrassed. I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. But I'm struggling with bitterness and true hatred for this person. And you guys are like, whoa, you're not supposed to say that. That's really bad. Yes, it's true. <laughs> but that's how I feel. Uh, And in my mind, I'm wrestling through these thoughts and I'm thinking through these things. I shouldn't have these feelings. But the hard part is I do. So what do I do with them? In the West, we've been really good about not talking about the, the nasty feelings that we have. And I think the reality is Jesus, when Jesus invites you to come and love God with all that you are, is to show up with all you are. In the ugly, in the broken, in the, the un—you know—perfected. And I remember sitting across from my wife, and I just said, "Yeah, I just—I honestly, I just hate this person." <laughs> and it felt like this huge cloud lifted off my shoulders. And to be clear, that doesn't mean I just stay in this place of like, "Yeah, I hate them." <laughs> The call for this moment and what I'm trying to point to is saying this person in my life is that down tree. Will I turn away and walk away from it or will I slow keep working at it to figure out how I can get over it and allowing the Lord to meet me in that? Because just like I saw that tree and acknowledged it, that it was an issue for me while I was running, and I know it's a pretty silly example, but it's something that I can point to. I, I think we need to do the same with these areas in our lives where we see a lack of love in our lives. Because to acknowledge, yes, I should love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength, but maybe you're not doing that. And so you need to acknowledge that and say, God, I've loved you well with my mind, and I've loved you well with my soul, but I have not loved you with these areas in my life. Or loving your neighbor as yourself. If you're looking at that and you're like, yeah, there's a lot of people that I don't love the way that I should. We don't look at these as moments to bring guilt and shame, but we use them as moments for clarity. A litmus test to show us where we really are at so we can be honest with where we're really at in our journey. Let those things be like down trees in your path and simply acknowledge them as areas that are, we are continuing to grow as followers of Jesus because Jesus does not look at me and say, Mike, I am disappointed that you cannot love this person. I think he would look at me and say, I wish you loved this person. And I want you to love this person. 
But what if, what if Jesus is trying to use that part in me to, to grow me deeper, to make me more whole, to make my love a little more genuine? And I'll be the first to say it. This reality, it's inconvenient. It takes time. And it's, it's a little bit difficult. It can be pretty painful. But the reality is ignoring it won't help you. Running away from it won't help you. We simply need to acknowledge it, and then we need to slowly, with the Lord's help, get over it and to grow deeper and more whole in our love. And so my big thing that I want to encourage you guys in is to feel what you are feeling and acknowledge your feelings, whether that's hatred, whether that's annoyance, whether that's hurt, whether that's frustration, whether that's sadness, loss, grief. Because that's what I'm learning. Once I'm honest about those feelings with God and with someone I trust, then the slow work of transformation begins. Because in acknowledging where I'm really at, God can be there. In me acknowledging where I was really at in that moment with my wife, she's able to connect with me and meet me there. And here's the thing, I don't just stay there. I'm able to move forward to become more and more a person of love. And honestly, as somebody meets me there, as God meets me there and as my wife meets me there, I'm able to be loved in a place where I know I'm not happy with where I, what I'm showing. And that's where, the trans, that's where the transforming work of becoming a person of love truly happens. And so simply to close it out very clearly, this is what the gospel is, church. It's acknowledging our falling short. That, and it's then and only then that we can receive His grace. Because if you have it all together, you don't need forgiveness. You don't need His grace. You don't really need His love if you've got it all figured out. Because you know what? Whenever I've got it together, I'm never looking for someone's help. And I'm never looking for anything, really. Because I've got it. I'm just cruising through life. And until you are loved the way that he loves you, it will be difficult to experience his love. And so my prayer for us as a church is that we become a people who are known for our love, a deep devotion and love for God. And it shows by how we live and our love for people and how we care for those both inside the church and those that are outside. And so... Really, I want to ask you this morning, and I want to encourage you, because I keep talking about this idea of practice. What am I going to ask for you to do this week? Because I like to assign homework now, because it just seems really fun. I want to encourage you to journal. There is an, a spiritual act of journaling where you are, will naturally, the realities of your heart will come up unless you are very intentional in stuffing it down, and then you will be very aware of what's going on in your own soul. And so I want to encourage you this week, journal about what's going on in your heart. Journal about unmet expectations. Journal about feel the feelings you have towards God, to the feelings you have towards your coworkers, the feelings you have towards family members, the feelings you have that you know you shouldn't have. And if you're like, that sounds too woo-woo, and that seems like, 
I don't really feel comfortable doing that. I want to encourage you to read the book of Psalms. Look at how David wrote, where two-thirds of the Psalms are, there's some very intense language and very intense uh, pictures where David is praying that God would bring bloodshed on his enemies or praying that God would send his enemies to hell. And the beauty of that is David was raw. And the beauty of the, that those are in scripture, it shows us that God is not afraid of your emotions. And so I want to encourage you to love God with all that you are. We in the church are very good at loving God with our minds, but I think we really wrestle with loving God with our emotions and loving God with all of ourselves. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching from Boise Community Church. To find more resources and information about Boise Community Church or to give to the mission of Boise Community Church, please visit us online at boisecommunitychurch.org. If you were encouraged by today's podcast, please rate and review it so more people can discover the hope and joy of Jesus' love.